and and part of what makes this so difficult is this fucking two-party system we have uh i mean the fact that we have two parties for a country as big and diverse as ours i mean a lot of europeans i know tell mm. me that you know we're like five countries here you know what i mean yeah uh the two-party system is one of the ways one of the primary ways the control is enforced in this country absolutely you just you just have these two parties and um of course, they do everything possible to control within these parties who can be elected, um, who can gain influence. I mean, you know, the Republicans didn't want Trump to be their nominee originally, most of them, most of the establishment Republicans. And of course, the Democrats didn't want Bernie to be their nominee. And, you know, Democrats are generally like smarter and more competent in, in preventing that from happening. It's also, it's, you know, Bernie is a socialist and the system in general is, is going to be more competent and it's going to be more um, intent in general in undermining a socialist than it is even like a proto-fascist like Trump. Um, socialism yeah. is the one thing that really can't be allowed to stand. I mean, it's uh, the, uh, the American deep state, you know, the FBI, they effectively undermined left-wing groups, you know, during the 60s and 70s, they destroyed the Black Panthers, but they didn't destroy the KKK, yeah. you know? No, 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 yeah. Uh, who who these uh, security services go after is very telling. Like, I remember being taught about the Ku Klux Klan when I was a kid in school, right? And, be, and it being sort of wrapped in the freedom of speech stuff. Like, well, you know, they believe that, but people get to mm. say what they want to say in the States. And like, as I got older, it's like, wait a minute, they fucking killed people. <laughs> it's like, you can't be uh -huh. more of a terrorist organization than them. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was worth going after. Absolutely. I mean, if fucking Pete Seeger had a fucking FBI file on him and was being surveilled to that extent. Uh, yeah, I think maybe, you know, Grand Wizard McFuckface uh, deserves <laughs> one as well. <laughs> I mean, the FBI keeps tabs on all kinds of people. It's it's nuts. I mean, like Steve Jobs had a, had a file. It's they keep tabs on all kinds of people. But you know, it, but the the subversion of the left is a lot more is very covert in a lot of ways. Like most people couldn't tell you who Fred Hampton is, or you know that the FBI literally killed him. Yeah. Um, I mean, even stuff as recent as, you know, under um, under Bush, there was uh, surveillance going on of uh, environmental groups and anti-war yes. activists. And, yes. you know, which is part of the reason why it's so powerful to have this kind of concentrated power is, you know, you're going to get some right winger in there who's going to use it against people like this. Uh, I mean, even like, you know, even Democrats will use it against people like this. You know, I mean, it's like Occupy Wall Street was, uh, you know, shut down under Obama. It's... Um, Anything that is perceived as a real threat to the system will be dealt with. Um, anything that undermines, you know, supposedly the stability of the United States. But I mean, ultimately, there's a political aspect to it, too. And the left is ultimately, you know, I mean, again, they destroy the Black Panthers, but not the KKK. I think that speaks for itself. Yeah. Uh, can we move on to the election then? Yeah, um, I'll actually start the show here, I guess. Do it. Maybe I'll... Maybe I'll edit in some of that banter. Uh, um, yeah, drop that, uh, drop that track, that hot, hot track. I, it's just we we immediately get into just this like conspiracism and the CIA every. Single yeah, time seriously, we, we that that's yeah, it's hard for us to to, to not go there. Uh, but you know, we got a it's fair our, amount. It's our of, it's our refrain, you know. We've got a fair amount of I think true and not in the DNA for this show, which I think it's good. Um, I love those guys. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. love. Them. Let's go.
Welcome to Pod Me Us, examining the crisis of neoliberal capitalism from a socialist perspective. As this country transitions towards a primarily podcast-based economy, uh, I'm here with uh, David Mizuki, our uh, Florida correspondent. How are you, David? Uh, I'm great, thank you. Uh, you forgot to mention that I'm also like, the uh, senior mozzarella taster. Senior mozzarella taster, senior uh, Italian correspondent. Uh, Correct. Senior. That's actually my grandpa's name. I don't know if you did that. You you gave me that G word pass. So I can say that. Not just anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish, dude. You know how much I wish I could get huffy about like you know Italian stuff. Like when people um, sort of like put on an affect kind of with me just to be joking and just like. I, I can't even pretend to act super offended, you know? Like, it just yeah. doesn't work. I guess the latest news is that Biden is now ahead in Pennsylvania. He's narrowly ahead in Georgia, which, you know, I thought we wouldn't quite get there, but it looks like he did. Um, but, um, I mean, the latest kind of from Trump world is his kind of uh, deflated press conference. Um, yeah. He's trying to pull this off, but... Um, <laughs> It's, it seems that he's just like slowly coming to the realization that um, that he's lost this and uh, he's not going to get back up. It's there's supposedly a lot of people within his administration who are questioning how they're going to, you know, to break it to him now. Um, the rats are the first to jump off the ship. A few of them are. Uh, you were saying that uh, who was it that was abandoning him on Twitter last night? Um, uh, abandoning him on Twitter? Yeah. Oh, it was uh, yeah, Ben Shapiro. I mean, Ben Shapiro wasn't part of the administration, but he is yeah. a uh, a Trumpist you know, without a doubt. And uh, he, he tweeted out on election night that you know it was way too premature for uh, Donald Trump to claim victory. But he's since equivocated a great deal on that. He's since you know like given him uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt as far as his claims of fraud and things like that. Uh, um, it's a it's a fine line. I mean. People well, it's like bullshit. That. I mean, he, he just does that initially so that he has the benefit of being like, see, I'm conservative, but I'm independent. I'm not, you know, I'm not with Trump on everything. And then as soon as Trump well, starts making these cockamamie claims of fraud and everything, he's right there in lockstep. These people are all just um, self-promoters. He wants to keep some of that Trump fan base on his side, but he also wants to be well positioned, you know, for disavow. whatever comes next. Yeah, yeah it does disavow. seem like, yeah, to disavow. Um, it's... Um, you know, these people will turn on a dime uh, depending on what they decide is in their best interest. So riddle me this, John, how uh, how bad do you think it can get? I mean, he already has a couple of court cases which are which were I mean, I think they've both been thrown out. I think both this case in Georgia and in Pennsylvania, or at least in one of those places. Yeah, in Georgia, a judge dismissed a lawsuit from the Trump campaign on Wednesday, according to uh, CBS Pittsburgh. Uh, Philadelphia, a federal judge throughout his campaign's attempt to stop the vote count. They're just, they're not even like, you know, it's not even these kinds of things where like, it's like, you know, a decision that can then be appealed. It's just a judge going like, that shit is dumb, dude. <laughs> well, you can't do that around here. It's the um, dumbest, most incompetent fascism possible because, you know, at the same time they're saying, uh, stop the count there. It's, you know, the, the refrain is that they have to continue the count in Arizona. 
So it's just like blatantly like self, it's like self interest. Yeah, contradictory and and self interested. Um, apparently, there's a recount that's going to happen in Georgia, which people are kind of unsure. It is very the- close. You know, one thing I do know about Georgia is that we have Stacey Abrams to thank for all these votes going for Biden and for him bringing it to the Democratic Party. Yeah. In, or potentially bringing it to the Democratic Party and who knows how long. Frankly, that's what needs to happen in especially these southern states where the precedent has just been set for so long that they're going to disenfranchise yeah, people. Man. And, you know, it's a white supremacist thing, you know, to a large extent. It's they didn't want a black governor of Georgia. And that's the way these conservative uh, politicians operate in the South. I mean, credit to her. She just pounded the pavement. You know, her opponent, who was secretary of state at the time running for governor, yeah. Uh, what the hell was his name again? Do you remember his name? Uh, I think it was uh, Dipshit. Uh, <laughs> dipshit McFuck Democracy. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like the most Southern <laughs> name. Leroy uh, Dipshit. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Billy Brian Bob. Kemp. Brian, Brian Kemp, Kemp. Yeah. yeah. He was the Secretary of State of Georgia, which is the position that oversees the election. Very cushy position to be in when you're running for governor. And what did he do as Secretary of State? He uh, disenfranchised hundreds of thousands of Georgians with no proper process or cause to it. We're going to need people like her, especially in these southern states, but like, you know, every state really. It's the Republicans are just going to continue to look for every excuse possible. They're going to use you know, signature matching to throw people off the rolls. They're going to use just every tactic they can. And uh, but really, I mean, you look at the black population in Georgia and uh, also in other southern states in Mississippi and Alabama, uh, you know, the black population is is heavily Democrat. And then as soon as you start getting some uh, white people who come around and I think, you know, younger people especially are going to, you know, as they see that, uh you know, as they're just tired of their states being behind and everything and uh, first and being last, as we say, you know, about Mississippi. Uh, some, you know, younger white people are going to come around. It is all kind of based around race in the South, especially. You know, as some white people come around, these uh, states are going to get closer and we'll get people like Stacey Abrams, who uh, people can rally around to register voters and who will question this uh, voter suppression that goes on. And yeah, I think we'll see the South uh, start to turn around. I mean, you know, it's happening in Texas. Um, I think it will happen in other Southern states gradually. That's a really stubborn constituency. Some people were hoping that this might be the election for Texas, but I think it's got to it's got to simmer a little longer. I mean, it's it's um, the South is nothing but stubborn. I mean, you know, you got dipshits down there still flying the Confederate flag. Uh, you know, it's. I mean, you're basically, you're going to have to have like that older population, that older white population that just like goes away. And uh, so it doesn't happen overnight, but it'll happen gradually. Um, it's been interesting to see on Twitter who is, um, you know, who is kind of hedging their bets in the conservative world and who is still sticking with Trump. Uh, last time I saw Candace Owens was still sticking with him and kind of backing up these claims of fraud. I saw that she was retweeting a uh, Venezuelan expat. <laughs> who was saying that, oh, yeah, this is exactly how uh, Chavez stole the elections in Venezuela. It's, you know, in the middle of the night, they dumped in the middle of the night, they dumped these new votes. And it's, uh, you know, of course, from the poor people that, you know, they don't think should have a voice in their democracy. Um, I mean, it's kind of it even goes back to what we were talking about with Bolivia, right? They they, they made the same accusations basically, oh, these new ballots coming in from the rural areas. Yeah, you know, some places take longer to come in and that shifts the vote tally as it comes in. 
Well, you know, this uh, is not uncommon in any election anywhere. Speaking of, you know, similar things that happened in Bolivia, just this morning it was reported that um, there's an article on Channel 6, uh, ABC News, I think from Philly. Uh, Police thwart alleged plot to attack Pennsylvania Convention Center where votes are being counted in Philly. So, you know, these radical Trumpers who want to stop the count, they were going to uh, attack this counting center. Um, this is exactly what happened in Bolivia. They attacked the counting centers. They burned ballots uh, because some of these people were just so convinced that there was fraud going on. But just also they wanted to stop the count because it was going Evo Morales' way. And, uh, you know, you've got people like this here who would like to do the same thing and, you know, and get Trump back in there by any means necessary. Um, Let it uh, never be said that these two things are equal, that the far left exemplified by you and me and even Antifa and any stripe of far left you can imagine. Let it never be said again after uh, this election that the far left and the far right are equivalent. Okay. When was the last time you ever heard about even groups as uh, considered quote unquote as extreme as Antifa, uh, you know, going to election centers, uh, burning ballot boxes, uh, intimidating election officials in this kind of way. These things yeah. are not the same. Yeah, but also at the end of the day, I mean, regardless of what people on quote unquote either side do, you know, history is on our side and morality is on our side. You know, we're the ones fighting for the poor and the disenfranchised and uh, people who are being exploited in this world. And they're fighting to protect privilege and, uh, you know, a racial hierarchy and all the rest of it. So, you know. It's not even just, and you're right, but you know, it's not just a question of which side has uh, morality on their side in terms of the tactics they use. It was like, ultimately, it's like we're the ones fighting for the right thing. Can I give you my hot take for this election real quick? So my biggest worry as of now is that Biden takes office easily without the help of people in the streets, without people who are organizing events you know to to protect the election right now because he'll feel even less than he already does about owing his constituency anything well it's pretty questionable what biden is going to do that's progressive i mean especially with a you know it could be a republican senate uh, it's going to be divided governments so but we need to build the strength of the left. You know, we need to have people in the streets and making connections with each other and organizing. And that's what needs to happen is that the left has to build strength and organize. But it does seem that people are jumping ship around Trump. So it does seem that people are trying to decide how they're going to break it to Trump. I think everyone expected him to do this. And I think they're kind of letting him throw his tantrum a little bit. We'll see how many people are going to try to back Trump up and how far he's going to take this through the courts if he's able to. Uh, and maybe not far. Maybe it's already looking like it's going to be not far. It's going to be, you know, we're looking at a recession and, uh, you know, Biden's going to have the reins with divided government potentially without the Senate. And so it's, you know, people are saying that like, you can say that a lot of the right has already gotten what they wanted out of Trump and people like McConnell are just going to let this recession happen and then uh, take power again in uh, 2024 with, I mean, someone potentially worse than Trump. Someone a bit smarter, maybe, you know? Yeah, uh, uh, more I'm thinking, I'm thinking Tom Cotton. That's what really scares me is when Tom uh, Cotton runs for president. A more intelligent, you know, proto-fascist and white supremacist, yeah. but... 
I mean, this is why we got to be organized and we got to be in the streets and we got to be building power on the left. But um, it's, you know, Trump is trying to do something like what Bush did in 2000. But things are just so much more divided now. And Trump is not Bush. At the end of the day, it's like Bush was able to, he was willing to do what the neocons wanted him to do and what the kind of NATSEC deep state wanted him to do. And it was also a much closer election. But Trump is, you know, in a way, he's just like an albatross for a lot of the right. And, you know, they know he is a moron. And he's an albatross he's a great for... great old guy. Yeah, and it looks like he will be, and it'll be very entertaining to watch. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was like Trump kind of was um, a wrench in the gears of, uh, you know, people who wanted outright war in Syria, uh, people who wanted just more war generally. Um, so I think he, I think they'll right be willing that. to let him go down. Had, yeah, I, I think you're right on that. I think he did have some generally, you know, really just from the, I think he, he really did not like the military industrial complex and saw it as a certain kind of waste of resources. And you have to balance that with the fact that he likes looking tough, you know? But yeah, well, Trump is also just, you know, it's all about self-preservation with him. And like, he knew that like people were tired of this endless war and he picked up on that and, and ran with it. But um, yeah, when he campaigned, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, I mean, you know, most of the Republican Party is just a lot more, I think, ideologically committed to uh, this kind of war and to this, you know, traditionally anti-communist uh, America, uberalis uh, foreign policy vision. Yeah, Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton. He's the one. Yeah, we'll see. But let's jump to the way that we're already starting to see some of the narratives and the explanations for this election starting to play out. It was really kind of a disaster down ballot for the Democrats. They've lost seats in the House and um, they could lose the Senate. I think it's been a lot like 2016. It's we're kind of seeing these uh, dueling explanations of race and people want to make this about class when reality, of course, it's both to some extent. But you've got a lot of Democrats who don't see this as a matter of class and who will never want to see it that way. But you know, they banked on suburban middle class, upper middle class people to bail them out. And, you know, as we've said before, they're just an unreliable constituency. They almost lost Pennsylvania. Uh, Virginia was very close. Um, a lot of these, uh, you know, middle class white people, you know, as long as the economy is decent for them, and it was under Trump, as long as their taxes are low, they'll vote for a racist. I just don't understand how you don't move towards even a shred of populist policies yeah. when we're in the middle of a pandemic and the worst economic recession uh, uh like worse we're, we're we're worse than great depression levels people are about to get thrown out of their houses people don't have health care i mean all this stuff that you know would speak to people across the board yeah i mean i think these people really are just in that much of a bubble you know your pelosi's and your schumer's and of course the the party is going to use this as an excuse to go right and you've already got people saying that you know, Pelosi uh, might not be the House leader again. They want to choose someone who's even more to the right. You've got Clyburn saying that, you know, they got to pick someone in the center. Are you talking about Jeffries? Well, Jeffries, I haven't. Oh, is, there, is there talk that he would be the next leader? He's because uh, he's horrible. I've, yeah, I've heard, I've heard whispers of, yeah. of Hakeem Jeffries, who's, you know, just another 
another another New York bundler of cash. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, that's exactly the Democrats brand is like woke capitalism. I mean, they're just going to find, you know, a person of color who is connected to Wall Street and, uh, you know, it just has the most, you know, you know, he's also dog shit on Israel for what it's worth. Um, <laughs> they're dog shit on everything. They, they, the only thing they're good at is it, it's embarrassing how leadership in the Democratic Party really amounts to, above all else, being able to curry favors with uh, big donors and then building relationships with, with your colleagues and earning favors from them through the cash that you can provide from them from those donors until you are in leadership. It's a strategy that's doomed to fail. And, uh, you know, if, if that's the way things go, it, it is going to fail in very short order. And I think we are going to end up with another Republican in 2024. But I mean, the narrative that you're going to see with Democrats, it's going to be the same narrative that we had in 2016, which is just half the country is irredeemably racist. And I mean, of course, racism is a problem in this country. But I think the, the analysis is that, you know, if you don't provide people an explanation, competing explanation for the world and for their struggles, you know, especially as we're turning towards another recession. I mean, you are going to have people who are won over by bigotry, who are won over of by course. sexism. And, you know, of the course. answer to that, the answer to that is, you know, critique of capitalism. It's like, yes. you know, to tell them that we've got an imperfect system, but the Democrats are all, you know, they're part of that system. So, you know, no, most I, of them, don't they don't, see... they don't want to do that. Look up Bernie Sanders going to Fox News for town halls, his ability to talk to people and reach them on issues, despite them being of a political strike that we are always told is irretrievable. It's unbelievable. You know, it's you can do it if you try and they don't even try. It's Bernie had his eccentricities and he's not, you know perfect but yeah i mean he tried i mean i remember you know he had a town hall on fox news he was and, too nice uh, that was the worst thing about him yeah he had a town hall in pittsburgh i think it was in in pennsylvania where he just killed with these uh working class people and um, he did two fox news ones both were amazing and then beyond that i mean the thing is that was like cable news you know uh, those sort of made a bit of a play in the mainstream uh, media consciousness but I don't know, I, I never heard anyone talking about him going to LU. And that was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah, and he, he was doing exactly what we're saying. The Democrats are continually, uh, you know, failing to do. Reaching out to people. I'm like, okay, I know you feel this way, but what do you think about this? What do you think about that? You know, like just, just almost like a Socratic method of questioning that leads people to conclusions and ideas that they didn't know they were actually holding already. Yeah, I mean, well, Democrats will do everything except like talk to people about those issues. You know, it's they've been talking about Russiagate for four years. They've been talking about how Trump was going to steal this election. And, you know, Bernie and supposedly people in, in Bernie world were kind of sounding the alarm saying it's like, you know, Biden could lose this. Like we're not talking about those pocketbook material issues. And, um, you know, the, the Democrats want to talk about anything except those. And, you know, the evidence is just all around that, like, that is what works. I mean, you had this uh, $15 an hour minimum wage in Florida that easily passed, even as Biden lost the state. I mean, how much more proof do you need that, like, this is the way forward? Um, 
So, I mean, if I can shift gears for a little bit, uh, just for a second, in terms of uh, the democratic ineptitude, we're talking about policy, but also in terms of political tactics this time. I mean, you know, uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib both pounded the pavement for Biden and knocked on doors when his campaign actually told them not to, not to lean into that tactic, as if Mm. like just basically totally disempowering face to face contact, which any political organizer worth his salt will tell you is what you're supposed to do like the thing is i mean people in power in the democratic party i mean they're as far removed from grassroots activism as you can be i mean there was is i remember this tweet just ad buys yeah i remember this tweet back around 2016 it was just exemplifies this perfectly so you had bernie supporters who were at a uh, protest And they were doing one of the classic kind of left-wing chants, you know, hey, hey, ho, ho, corporate greed has got to go or something like that. And this Hillary supporter, like they actually thought this was like a sexist chant against Hillary. They are just that far removed from this world. You know, it's, it's, that's been like a staple of protest for like decades, this hey, hey, ho, ho. And they were just completely uh, bewildered and unfamiliar. I mean, it's these, these people are just... These people are just of another world and they've got to be removed from leadership and just, just, uh, you know, we've got to take away their influence. And, you know, meanwhile, Democrats continue to want this narrative without talking about these class issues. Meanwhile, Trump did better with some minority groups this time around than he did in 2016, you know, particularly among Latinos, Trump did better. And, um, and, you know, it's this long-term strategy of the Republicans. They're going to speak to upper-class Latinos. And, you know, traditionally, it's, it's Latinos vote on more solidaristic issues. They vote on immigration. And they vote based on the blatant racism that, you know, the right displays against Latinos and other groups. And, you know, the Republicans are just going to try to continue to bring them in the fold and basically make them honorary whites. And they're going to have yes, some exactly. success with that. And, you know, meanwhile, the Republicans usually can do well with these uh, white suburbanites and, you know, upper class voters. So you take that and then, you know, as they make inroads with certain sectors of of minority groups, the Republicans really have, you know, a winning coalition that even if like just Trump were less dumb and just less blatantly just unsuited for the job, the Republicans could have very easily won this election and they will win elections in the future if we don't start winning people on these class issues, which it seems the Democratic Party is, you know, just does not want to do. No, that's the thing. It's, it's one thing to, to, to the point of what you were just saying. I totally agree. And it's sort of like, um, you know, there was this guy, I forget his name. He was uh, part of the Patriot Prayer Group, which is that group in Oregon uh, mm-hmm. that was getting into it with protesters there. And uh, he went on Tim Pool's show, of course. And uh, he said, I'm not a white supremacist. I'm an America supremacist, you know. Mm. I, and I feel that's, uh, that's a sentiment that, um, you know, I, yeah, and, and I, I think... You know, you got machista white people, you got machista Hispanics, machista black people. And you know, they're, 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 uh, I think they're happy to the, those kinds of people for whom a, uh, an overtly, uh, you know, masculine uh, chauvinist politics yep. like the Proud Boys. I mean, the head of the Proud Boys is a Hispanic guy, you know, and he loves to tout that. And, you know, that, that itself, and, he, and he's right to because he's right to because Chris Wallace 
you know, we have to say, looking back, especially now looking at these votes, Chris Wallace misidentified, um, you know, the, the, the troubling aspects of the, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the Trump brand, which is not necessarily white supremacy anymore. Maybe it was more true in 2016, but now it's just sort of America supremacy. Well, it's, it's both, yeah. And it's, um, you know, what's the famous quote? That patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Yeah. Um, you know, these things are powerful, emotional things that can be tapped into. And, you know, the Republicans are going to tap into nationalism and patriotism. And they're going to, you know, when they can tap into chauvinism and the bigotry and the sexism. And, um, you know, the left needs something with a similar explanatory power for people with similar appeal and explanatory appeal for the world, which is socialism, which is, you know, Marxism even. Um, you know, it, it, until the Democrats really start to build something like that again, you know, which they basically had in the early 20th century, which was built to some extent with the New Deal coalition, until they start to rebuild that um, mindset, which was, you know, the mindset that brought them to power to begin with, you know, they're just going to be forever kind of condemned to just being against whoever the Republican is at the time. And that's not a tenable long term yeah. Uh, strategy, you know, you're going to no, get a Republican always, who's more savvy than Trump, you know? Yeah, they're always, I mean, they find themselves continually like one step behind, behind the eight ball, kind of always acting in response, like they're leading the dance and we're following, or like if you're playing chess where, you know, you know, in, uh, in chess, there's this thing where you're like, you know, one move behind the other person where they have like attacks on you and you need and you're just you can't even form a quite. And it's just stifling your overall strategy to win even because all you're doing is just sort of plugging holes in your defense that they are pointing out. And you need to come up with a move that is not just defensive, but also an offensive move at the same time to sort of change the rhythm of that fight. Right. And I, I felt like at, at no point, at no point during this, uh, during this uh, campaign season was Biden ever looking like he was doing that at best. He was, uh, you know, pointing out uh, the, the Trump, uh, you know, Trump's numerous gaffes along the way, which thankfully he was making, but uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 like, think, you know, it's like we were saying, you know, the next Trump isn't going to be this fucking stupid. So we we can't we can't risk this kind of shit. You know, we need someone who's who who has better moves and uh, under their belt than just, uh, you know, playing defense and pointing out how bad the other guy is. It's just not an effective way to win or to or or uh, or a compelling plan to govern frankly we need we need yeah we need someone who can run and who can govern with a genuine populist appeal and you know if they're looking at people like hakeem jeffries that is not the answer no um, no but he's black though john you're forgetting that well, that's his yeah that's a, that, but that is the beginning and end of of what 
uh, Hakeem uh, Jeffries really has to offer. That's uh, the beginning and the end of the depth of their as analysis. The as far as progressive policy. Yeah, it's, well, you know, it's, they're going to continue to do things like that. But, you know, Republicans, you know, can and they have played the same game and they'll just keep doing that. You know, they'll pick out their POC faces, you know, their Candace Owens and, and you know, other people like that. And, you know, they can play that same shallow game. Sure, but their POC faces also toe the Republican line ideologically, which at least they fucking have one. We have, we don't yeah. even have, what is the Democrat, what is the Democrat plan for anything? I mean, like, I, yep. I just remember with, 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 uh, with Biden, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, he, the Biden ticket basically this time around got as many votes as you're ever going to get running a campaign where you're just asking people to vote against something or someone, you know, on, yeah. on the things that people want, they were all general platitudes that could be disavowed and on things that they don't want is where they got specific, you know, like, it's, it's yeah. You know, like he said unequivocally, we're not going to stop fracking. Right. Like that's something that nobody wants except for right wingers who don't vote for you. It was a strategy of just opposition to Trump and, uh, you know, they're going to continue to have the same surface level strategy, because when you get down to it, it's Democrats offer the same policy as the Republicans in a lot of ways, just a milder version of it. I mean, they're still neoliberals and they're going to offer neoliberal policy, uh, you know, economic policy, and they're going to, um, you know, keep us at the same stasis we've been at, you know, since the Reagan era. Even as, you know, there's evidence all around them that this neoliberal consensus is crumbling and the Republicans are starting to see that and they at least make these superficial appeals. You know, people like Boris Johnson, you know, campaigns as this populist and says, oh, we're going to give more money to the NHS. And of course, they don't really do it. But um, no, they're they were uh, I, I don't know where they are on this. But I remember reading last year about how. Uh, there was there were these like high level meetings between uh, the American pharmaceutical industry and British government about how they could make inroads into Britain. Basically, you know, uh, whoa, how, how are we going to find a way to make it politically feasible to jack up uh, pharmaceutical prices here the way they are in the United States? You know, yeah, uh, that, that's what he's actually up to. Yep. Yep. And it's um, I mean, it's we've said it before. This is the literal like uh, formula behind fascism, you know, behind the Nazis. It's a insincere, you know, populist economic appeal, uh, you know, together with uh, bigotry and, and racism at its core. And um, so it's totally and that's and, that, and that's not just in leadership. Right. You see it on the rank and file with all these assholes at all these freaking polling places crying foul at nothing oh in yeah. one place they shouldn't be counting anymore and in another place count all of them oh what's this we don't have our, our you know our poll watchers aren't allowed inside even though they are you know like that you know all those tactics you know when they're alone together uh, planning stuff they they admit to the disingenuousness of it it's it's in yeah. the light of day that they that they uh, get so moralistic about it. And it's, you know, it, it's all just, uh, you know, blind obedience to the leader. You know, when it gets down to it, I would probably call him like a proto-fascist because uh, it's not, you know, it's not quite there, but you can very easily see how Trump could pave. He's an authoritarian. You could very easily see how Trump is, you know, paving the way for something worse to come. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, I don't think we need to necessarily even get hung up on how much it lines up with uh, with fascism back then in the sense of, you know, the 
you know, the, the, the system we're under is just going to, it's just different in, in so many ways that, you know, it's never going to look quite like that, you know, no matter how barbaric they get, you know, even later on when there's someone who fits the bill more, uh, more accurately as far as how barbarous they can be, you know, there'll be people like, oh, well, no, it's not quite the same or whatever. And it, yeah. it'll amount to the same thing because of you know, how fucking barbaric they are. Well, it's, it's going to, um, you know, it's not going to look exactly the same, but um, some guy once said, this uh, old bearded guy, that uh, history tends to repeat itself uh, first as tragedy, then as farce. Santa, a, yeah. Uh, and I think it was, yeah, it was Santa Claus looking guy. Yeah, for Pete itself, yeah. For, yeah, like every year he brings the same presents, yeah. We're seeing a, uh, a kind of a dumber version of what, of course, you know, fascism originally was pretty dumb, right? I mean, the, their supporters were dumb and they were losers. But, and we're seeing an even dumber version of that now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's less dangerous. But, um Let's move on to the kind of our final thing here, which is some of these other results um, that we saw Tuesday night. Um, I mean, we'll start with kind of the bad. Uh, you were telling me about this uh, Prop 22 in California, David. Yeah, so Prop 22 is uh, basically, so it passed. And what it did was it, uh, so I'll, um, I'll uh, pull up my LA Times article here now. If you guys want to find this particular article, uh, it, the title is California Voters Approve Prop 22, Allowing Uber and Lyft Drivers to Remain Independent Contractors. What I think is also, I mean, I'm not sure they necessarily mean it this way, but uh, I think that's a very funny kind of... I like the Onion's take on this. That uh, Oh, what's the Onion's take? <laughs> that uh, they want a court decision saying that the drivers can actually be classified as car parts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've almost reached I mean, that level of insanity i mean uh, it's just uh well even this la times headline california's approved prop 22 allowing uber and lyft drivers to remain independent contractors as in they wanted that no the the, the drivers were not you know at the state house with signs and stuff like please please allow me to remain an independent contractor i want the freedom and flexibility and low fucking pay and bullshit I have to pay my own payroll taxes yeah i want to you know I, I want to be in charge of absolutely everything i have to do for my employment here i i, I want to pay the insurance on my car and own my car and do the, and control the wear and it's freedom yeah i want that yeah it's freedom um yeah so uh Basically, uh, let's see, I want to find a sort of summarizing paragraph here that's worth reading. Uh, Uber and Lyft have long argued that state regulations fail to account for the complexity of their business models and they should be treated as technology platforms, not transportation providers. The measure allows the companies to avoid paying for a standard, more expensive suite of benefits as required under state law, but still provide workers who would remain independent contractors with some benefits. Oh yeah, you'll get like a fucking Best Buy gift card once a month or something <laughs> for like 20 yeah. bucks. Like, what the fuck? I mean, this is, it, it's, um, it, it's really serious. It's really serious because it affects not just Uber and Lyft specifically, but uh, Grubhub and DoorDash and frankly opens the door. I mean, you know, California is the seventh largest economy in the world. It is the most populous state in the country. And a legal precedent there has ripple effects across the country. And I think it's not long before we see a, a case before the Supreme Court or national legislation to the same effect uh, using this 
as a model. And that's really, really frightening. I mean, forget any gains. You know, this is basically a wholesale rejection of the structure of labor as we know it. This is exactly what these companies try to do once they get the power to do it. I mean, this is what FedEx does. Uh, of course, UPS workers are unionized. Uh, FedEx workers are not unionized because they are allowed to be classified as, I think it's like an airline, because they have, uh, oh, you know, sure. so many planes that transport things. So, I mean, this is what these companies do to get around this shit. Yeah, man, I, I flew I flew FedEx to the Caymans for my vacation. It was awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a decent flight. It's... Um, you know, better. You just got to find a box you can fit in. But then from there, you know, just poke <laughs> holes in the box from the inside, bada bing, bada boom. And, you know, you're in the Caymans. This is what these, uh, you know, companies do once they gain power. And increasingly, Uber and Lyft and companies like that have gained power. And they're just taking a page from the playbook of FedEx and these other companies. And, you know, of course, it's what they've always done. I mean, Uber just goes into cities and blatantly ignores the regulations for taxi drivers until they Absolutely. get their way. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. And this is, you know, this is the future, you know, it's going to be these uh, Silicon Valley assholes who try to get away with this blatant exploitation, you know, with a facade of, you know, being very woke and modern and uh, all the rest of it. Yeah. And let's not forget the Democratic Party's complicity in this bullshit. OK, uh, at the convention in 2016, if you went to the Democratic convention in 2016, uh, if you went with a cab, you know, a sort of normal cab from in town, uh, you were dropped off like about 500 feet away from the convention. And it was only if you got an Uber that you were brought all the way to the door because yeah. Uber was sponsoring the convention. Yeah. And these are the <laughs> these are, you know, the kind of coalitions that the Democratic Party builds with capitalists, you know. And when they see that it's in their interest, you know, for whatever reason, the capitalists shift towards one party or the other. But, you know, Democratic Party has always had sectors of capital. You know, they have Hollywood. They've had the telecom industry. They have these, you know, Silicon Valley woke capitalists. You know, even going back to FDR, it was um, you had a lot of private interests who benefited from the New Deal, from rural electrification, for example. You had energy companies and electricity companies who benefited from it. And who sided with the Democrats, uh, you know, because FDR didn't ultimately overcome capitalism. He was able to reform it temporarily because there were some very specific conditions at the time. Right. And you had global depression and world war that allowed some headway to be made. And of course, a strong workers movement. But, uh, you know, you're always going to have it's always going to be an interest of money and the uh you know, the arrangement of material forces as long as we have capital. I mean, yeah, basically what he did back then, he called it, uh, you know, he called it priming the pump for the economy. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, he was he was using an analogy about how, you know, like a, a well on a farm or something. Uh, sometimes you have to uh, pour water into the well as you're pumping it to uh, get a good flow going eventually. And that's basically what these programs did. You know, they hired by the thousands, people who, you know, were involved in, in, in writing and artistic trades, you know, uh, people to paint murals across the country to build local institutions like libraries, uh, local theater troops, writers, all that stuff. And that, that spurred. Oh, it ultimately redounded to the capitalist class because it was, it was in effect job training. And, you know, these programs wound up and then, you know, they went back to the private sector with these newly granted skills. But it got people back on track to a certain extent, maybe not to the uh, 
not to the uh, eventual transformation that we're looking for, but you know, we're at a place right now where, I mean, when was the last time you heard Joe Biden talk about a jobs program, you know, yeah. in, in this economy that, uh, that, that is, that especially post COVID is, you know, leaving people in destitution. I mean, it would it, be helpful. Uh, yeah, it would be absolutely helpful, even if it were just to get enough money and experience in people's pockets to then sort of go back into, uh, you know, maybe just a slightly more benevolent system than than we had pre-COVID. It, it would know, be that, helpful. That, that would already be a that would already be you know a, a decent step. And and this uberfication of labor here is just. Yep destroying any possibility of that even. yeah i mean it would be helpful it would be a move back to a keynesian style of capitalism you know rather than the laissez-faire neoliberal style that we have now but um you know there were ultimately faults with um the keynesian model and marxist economists will point this out um maybe we'll do a show on this at some point it's like you know i, was, I think i was talking about it in episode four that ultimately the keynesian model like had its faults and you know you did have this uh inflation and stagnation in the 70s and it's um you know there can be no permanent class compromise and you know in the 70s it's you know the working class was kind of winning in some ways you know they had labor unions that were very powerful and they had a lot of concessions but there can be no permanent class compromise. And as long as the capitalist class is still around and you have concentrations of wealth, they're going to shift things back to their favor as they did, uh, you know, in the neoliberal era, which began, you know, even with Carter, people say. So, so ultimately we've got to transcend capitalism. Um, but it's, um, yeah, let's, we'll get back to these other results. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off a second ago. Um, no, it's fine. I mean, no, I just think that, that, you know, the New Deal is, I just think as far as, you know, what is considered generally in the mainstream an acceptable form of public policy in this regard, uh, it, it's just baffling to me that these kinds of measures are not even remotely on the table, not even not yeah. spoken of by either of the candidates uh, and, and especially the Democrats, I mean, they, they, they have left behind any any notion of New Deal politicking. And it's uh, it's really a shame when you consider how uh, how many people are screwed right now. I mean, they're they're I mean, totally, totally indifferent to to the immiseration going on right now. It's like it's not happening. It's really like it's not happening to them. In the short term, these are things that we can fight for, you know, these kind of reforms. And uh, it's, you know, read the Communist Manifesto. You know, Marx says that communists should run on a platform of universal health care and education to show people, you know, the value of running things in the public interest, uh, you know, by the, by, the, by the public instead of, um, you know, for profit by the capitalist class. Uh, you know, Rosa Luxemburg in her history of the Russian Revolution, she points out all of these struggles by uh, organized labor at the time and how, you know, it's, uh, and that's, that was Rosa Luxemburg's conclusion was that uh, reform and revolution aren't opposed to each other. They're just different stages of the same fight. And you can fight for these reforms in the short term and that's how you learn to fight. And that's how you learn to build, uh, you know, organization, you fight for these reforms in the short term and you get concessions and you build strength, you know, for the ultimate revolution, for a break with capitalism, which is what we need fundamentally. The opposition, I think, is well aware of that, which is why they fight tooth and nail on even the most minor reforms. Yeah, you know, no, that's they, that's they, what they, they see that it, they, they see these things 
as uh, you know possible uh, you know feet like in the cracks door. in the dam. Yeah, yeah, cracks in the dam, foot in the door for for things that would that would take their bullshit private management of these uh, you know uh, of these necessary for life institutions out of their hands. That's his. That's, that's Mitch McConnell's goal is to prevent anything like the New Deal from ever happening again. Just continuing to, you know, and, and by preventing any reforms, they're just continuing to build pressure within the system, which is going to blow at some point. And, you know, we'll see how it blows. But it's, um, you know, we can't go on like this, just this inequality and this just immiseration. Uh, yeah, we have, uh, we, yeah, like I said, we're talking about um, unemployment, uh, facing eviction, lack of health care in the tens of millions across the board with no real response. I mean, you have Joe Biden, you know, with that uh, usual impassioned emotional tone of his talking about health care as a human right. Is he anywhere on Medicare for all? Fuck no. no. He is nowhere on it. And if it's not controlled and guaranteed by the state that it's not a human fucking right okay that's some libertarian bullshit right there the notion of rights being just out there in nature you know doesn't exist we talked about this yeah no it's a liberal uh conception of rights you know there has to be some material backing for rights. libertarian actually you know traditionally yeah i mean you know liberals were you know it's, it's the same thing as libertarianism but it's yeah, you know, the Democrats want to run this, you know, facade of a class warfare politics without the actual class warfare. And, you know, at some point we're going to have to actually see it, um, you know, at a larger scale. But um, getting back to, um, you know, the results from Tuesday night, uh, Cory Bush is going to be in Congress. So we're getting some uh, some more left wing people in Congress who are going to continue to raise consciousness and. You know, we've talked about this before. I think, you know, whether they're within the Democratic Party, whether they are outside of the Democratic Party, where it's possible, you know, like Shama Sawant or like Ginger Ginseng. We want to, um, uh, you know, continue to have people that can use this electoral platform to raise consciousness and to, uh, you know, to build progress where we can. So that's a good thing. Yeah, and she comes from a, you know, she, she she's she's as real as it gets, you know, registered nurse who then just took up activism full time after the uh, shooting of Michael Brown, I think, in St. Louis. And she was, you know, instrumental in the activism that was organized there, uh, took up politics, uh, decided that, you know, this was more her calling and... Uh, I think someone with that kind of uh, background is exactly what's needed. And I'm excited to see what she's going to do next. Yeah. These are the kind of people uh, we need in politics. Um, and they're the kind of people who eventually, you know, we, we don't just need them there. We need them to have a long fucking career. And we need, them yeah. to, we need to have a kind of politics that ends up, you know, considering them for, uh, you know, eventual cabinet positions and, uh, you know, e even more consequential positions than where she already is, which is, you know, I don't want to diminish it, but, uh, you know, mm -hmm. here's to her career being long and even, you know, here, here's to this being the beginning of a, a very auspicious career. Yeah, we want these people going as far as they can or even, uh, you know, running for president at some point. So, and just becoming, just using their platform and becoming uh, leaders, which was very important. I mean, you know, look at the, you know, Twitter following behind the, uh, the squad. Uh, you know, they have a lot of influence, uh, you know, especially with younger people now. So, 
That's a good thing. Uh, drugs also had a big night Tuesday night. So, uh, you know, we might have some tough times to come, but at least you'll have a uh, recreational pot in uh, even more states now. Uh, yeah, well, I'm from New York, so uh, I don't really go. <laughs> Until yeah. it's in New York, I'm very... Uh... Man, the fucking cops in New York, It's they're going to prevent that happening for as long as they can, you know, because they don't want it to happen. Um, I don't know. We might have to, um, I don't know. We might have to play that uh, New York City Cops by the Strokes as our outro song. I don't know. Oh, bravo, John. I, uh, I'm smitten with the fact that you're familiar with that song. It's a great song. Um, I don't know. I don't think we can because we'd have to pay royalties. Yeah. But Shout maybe out eventually. to, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to give myself some cred here just for a second. You know, I'll have you know that I went to a fancy schmancy private school in New York, but guess what? So did two of the strokes, baby. Went to my school. Two of the strokes went to my school. Shout out to Julian Gatavakis. And, uh, yeah. Lennon had a, uh, you know, upper middle class, uh, kind of background, you know, it's what you do with it. And it's, um, I mean, you know, sometimes it's people from that background who have the time and, you know, the familiarity with, uh, you know, uh, with reading Marxist literature or whatever else, you know, with revolutionary politics. So, you know, there was this fine. one crystallizing moment for me when I was in uh, that school where, I mean, we were taught just sort of generally, I mean, you know, as you get older, right, you sort of realize how much of the history you were taught in middle school and high school was kind of bullshit. And we had a class and they're like, hey, guys, come on, get out of class, go to the auditorium. And I was like, you know, it's like math or something. I was like, sweet. Yeah, fuck this. I'm happy to <laughs> see whoever talked to me for an hour. But this was some asshole who maybe was uh, a parent of a, of a student at my school or something who was there to talk to us about the international economic system and uh, talk to us about the essentially how good comparative advantage is and how, you know, um, it's fine, you know, he basically said something like, you know, it, it's the way the global economy works is that, uh, you know, Morocco and Africa sends their raw materials to France and we make microchips mm. and shit and, uh, and that's how it works. And his whole talk was built around that. And they took me out of fucking class to come listen to this clown. <laughs> Because I guess he must be like on the board or donates to the school or has a kid there or all three. And like, like at the time, honestly, I felt I felt so I feel so guilty that like, I, you know, I wasn't that politically motivated in high school. And I was watching him talk and thinking like, this seems a little weird, you know, but I didn't know much more beyond that inkling. You know, and looking back, it's like, fuck, man, they were just there to fucking brainwash us into perpetuating the system. It was amazing. For, for me down in Mississippi in high school, it was, you know, like religious fanatics. It's I remember we had a um, it was like a mandatory uh, gathering where we had this uh, religious fanatic come and speak before us about abstinence and purity and, you know, all the rest of it and uh, bullshit. But it's no, this is how the global economy works, you know, and that is it's the way it's always going to work. Yeah, it, it took me a while to realize that I was being that I wasn't just getting an education. I was being groomed for a very particular yeah. way of thinking that benefits yeah. the system as it is. And, and you know, people like Steven Pinker will always say, oh, things are getting better because of capitalism. It's like poverty is going down. Most of the poverty <laughs> reduction that's happened in this world has been in China. 
And if you exclude China, it's like poverty is actually getting worse. And, uh, you know, it's going to continue under the system. Not, not only that, but, you, but frankly, you need to measure uh, poverty reduction, reduction in mortality and things like that, uh, not just as a, 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 like a sum total reduction, but actually as, you know, how much those things are being reduced versus how much our capabilities mean that we should be reducing them you know we've made huge you know if you're con- if you're comparing the fucking 1900s to now yeah we are we we, we have uh, a better we, we have a lower mortality rate because our doctors actually know what the fuck they're doing compared to back then so if you yeah, just measure I mean, it by that it's not good enough you need to measure that against how many people have access to that adequate medical care that we have now some of this is natural progression. I mean, it's, um, but. Right, and yeah, that's I mean, what Stephen the, the, Pinker relies on. That's what Pinker yeah, relies no, on. Yeah, no, but the, the contradictions are unavoidable. I mean, it's, we have more empty homes in the United States than we do homeless people. We create enough food in this world to uh, feed everyone, and yet there are people who go hungry. Uh, you know, this is a systemic problem, and we've got to yeah. change the system. We should devote, I think it would be worth both of us studying up a bit and doing a, an episode just, just only, like, even just on weaponized agriculture, just that on its own, you know, yeah. of, like, of subsidizing the shit out of it, uh, GMOs, pesticides, all that stuff going into making these like souped up like super corns and stuff that we export everywhere for the sole purpose of destroying the local farmer there and getting them on the dole. Yeah. And it's, you know, well, what we've got in the United States is kind of the beginning of a um, like a potential like farm collectivization. And, you know, Lenin pointed this out. And, you know, I, I think the one single best thing you could read by Lenin is uh, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, because I think we're seeing those trends play out again now after this kind of uh, welfare capitalism detour throughout the 20th century. But we are seeing this, uh, you know, monopoly capital and we're seeing uh, consolidation and we're seeing that happening with farming in the United States. And, you know, Lenin pointed out that there's a dialectic relationship here. It's you have these, you know, monopolies and this uh, kind of the uh, consolidation of big business. And, you know, this is the first step towards, you know, once it gets that concentrated, it can just be nationalized, you know. We can nationalize these things and run them for the benefit of everyone. You know, we can nationalize Walmart. You know, Walmart just has it. Or Amazon, you know, it is, they really have the system, you know, nailed down. And you can just make that a public good at this point. I, I wish you luck. <laughs> I mean, but that is the, that is the, you can see how that is the, um, that's the logical next step, right? Because it is so consolidated already. The next step is, well, you know, if it's going to be that consolidated and it's going to be such a monopoly, have the government run it. Um, and that would be, you know, you could make the case for that. Didn't we already go through a fucking Gilded Age and yeah. decide that this sucks and immiserates people, you know? I mean, yeah. even then, the, 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 and what we need to learn from back then is that the response wasn't enough, right? That, like, just breaking up enough. the trust, that, that just breaking up the trusts and all that, while useful, wasn't enough, and just you know, left them, let the left them free to reconstitute. Yeah, I mean, every, everything done by the New Deal wasn't enough, and uh, you know, Bernie talks about like returning to a New Deal consensus. No, we need to go past it. You know, it's one thing to rein in the power of the rich, and it's one thing to tax the rich. That's what we did. You know, taxing them at rates of you know ninety percent on the on, you know, the upper echelons of their income, but. Unless you take away the fundamental source of their power, unless you take away the ownership of the economy by this consolidated, 
you know, bourgeois class, that's where their power is. It's in their ownership. It's not just in their money. It's in their ownership and the kind of influence that they get from that. And unless you take that away, you know, they're going to continue to have that power. And, you know, arguably they started to regain that power as soon as, uh, as soon as Harry Truman was in the presidency and you saw Taft Hartley and the assault on unions and all the rest of it. So, yeah. No, I want to say shout out to Joe Biden for having repealing Taft Hartley as part of his platform. That would be a pretty good crack in the dam if we can repeal Taft Hartley. I mean, you know, the kind of organization we're going to see now, I think it's going to necessarily be different from, you know, what we saw in the early 20th century. And, you know, a lot of the what the working class used to look like, it's in China now, you know, this kind of this dynamic where people were in factories and they were physically close to each other and they could organize in that way. It's, you know, now you're working class, it's a lot more spread out and it's people working in uh, fast food and it's people working for Uber and Lyft. And so, I mean, we're going to have to see what organization looks like in the 21st century and maybe it will be more online, you know, um, but it's going to, it's going to look a little bit different. Um, and we'll see how it uh, plays out exactly. Repeal a tapped Hartley would be a good first step. Um, but we will uh, see how things play out. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, got to get organized, got to fight for the future we want. But um, I think that might be about a good place to end it. Uh, you got anything else, David? Well, uh, there was the stuff about Lee Carter. Did you want to get to that uh, real quick? No, it was. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, Lee Carter, he wasn't up for reelection, but. It's um, uh, our ginger socialist guy is going to continue to be, uh, you know, stirring up shit in Virginia. So, yeah, uh, the Republicans there uh, want him have, have demanded, demanded his resignation after he had the audacity to participate in protests and walked right up to police lines. Yeah. A fucking king, this guy. He's a good guy. They ran a mailer against him there, you know, with his like face alongside, you know, that kind of classic image of his face alongside the faces of uh, Marx and Engels and Lenin. And he posted that on his Twitter. He's like, this is fucking sweet. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. He's a king. Um, yeah. And but... I, I've seen the pictures of him like recently at these protests and stuff. And I love that uh, that 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 you know, thankfully we don't live in a proper police state yet. And the most that the Republican legislature can do is, you know, sort of put together a statement, demand, we demand his resignation. It's like, okay, no, yeah. I don't resign. <laughs> like, what are you going to do now? I, I don't resign. That's the answer. Unless we see another red scare like we had in the early 20th century or like we had after World War II. And, you know, we might, we should be on the oh, lookout no, no, sure, for that. Sure. I'm talking about as of now, as of yeah. now, you know. Other politicians around his level, working at the state level and everything, take note of how you represent your constituents. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that might be about a good place to end it. Uh, Lee Carter is a king. Uh, Corey <laughs> Bush, pretty good. These are people who are saying good things in positions of power. So that's what we like to see. But um, yeah, I think we probably got enough here. Um, yeah, I think we can wrap it up here. Um, yeah, until next time. This was a good one. I like this. We had a good flow. Yeah. Um, see you guys next time. See ya. Thank you.